0: It's Bad History! Hey guys, welcome to episode 28 of Bad History. Bad History! My name is Steven, and I am joined this week like every single other week with my best friend and esteemed colleague Dave. What's going on, Dave? What's going on, Steven? Good morning to you. Good morning to you as well. We were recording as the sun is rising, sipping on a fresh cup of coffee. Just ready to talk about some history, I think. Let's do this. Yeah, this is weird. This is, like, usually 12 hours before we usually record. Yeah. I don't like this sun guy over here. I know. I don't Fucking like it Fucking bright either. and shit. Ugh. Yeah. Do you also like how I, like, snuck in an extra syllable to friend? <laughs> Verlet back there? Free end. Yeah, it was good. Uh, <laughs> but this is episode number 28, and this week we are going to be talking about... Military Technology Disparities Between Two Armies. Uh, We kind of, we spent a good deal of time trying to find that title,
1: huh, Dave? Yeah, that's kind of, it's kind of hard to put into words. Right, it is. But essentially, it's my dad can beat
0: up your dad. But my dad's about five feet shorter and doesn't have any arms. doesn't have any arms which is pretty much what we're talking
1: about I'm just imagining your dad charging my dad (laughs) with no arms. (laughs) He's doing the shoulder shimmy as he runs (laughs) out. So we have two
0: great stories for you. Great stories. Great stories all about disparities in weapon technology. But before we get into that, Dave...
1: We kind of talked about this a little bit at the start of the episode, but I need to know how you're doing, man. Oh, man. Uh, I have been working my ass off lately. We are recording this uh, super early because it is the only time slot I can. Shit's going on. Got no time for fun. That's my life. Yeah.
0: That's why we're also recording this on a Friday, and the episode is also going up on a Friday.
1: They don't need to know that. That's okay, (laughs) though. (laughs) Steven! yeah how about you dude you see any good movies you read any good books playing any good video games
0: um I am actually currently reading a book called The People's History of Modern Europe preparing myself for teaching AP Euro and uh I'm going to be on a plane on Sunday for about 8 hours and I was like I need a good book to read for that for that little shindig so I picked
1: that up are you going to Great Britain or are you going to Europe Oh, dude, I'm going to Europe. Yeah, we should talk about this, right? This happened like what two hours ago. This happened. This
0: happened. Uh, I saw this last night at like one a.m. That yeah. Europe. That that the United Kingdom is officially no longer part of the uh, the EU,
1: which which is crazy. Yeah, fuck them. I mean, they it, were kind of like. They were part of the EU, like, obviously, but they were, like, the weird one who, like, used their own currency, and, Yeah, like, you had to take a boat to get there, you know what I mean? Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I think this is going to have a lot of repercussions that, uh, you know, if you listen to this episode and oh, about three or four years, you're probably going to be like, yeah,
1: all the shit happened. I'm calling yeah. it. I'm calling it World War Three. It's going to be Britain versus Europe. Britain it's going to be over, Europe. like, some soccer bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But anyway, uh, yeah, I've been good. I've just been hanging out. But let's just uh, let's just jump into the history. Let's just do it. Let's just get, right. get our feet wet here.
1: Yeah, dude, play that music. Let's play that music. Okay, Steven. So my tale of military technological disparity uh, centers around the Satsuma Rebellion in Japan, or Saigo Takamori, and the Southwest War. So I don't know why I always fucking do like China or Japan or East Asia because I don't know shit about that area. But I always pick it. So here we go. (laughs) So a little background on the situation. Um, Steven, have you heard of the Meiji era in Japan before? Uh, I've heard of it. I don't know enough
0: about Japanese history to like to break you off a piece of knowledge,
1: but well, let me let me give you a little let me give you a little taste of that knowledge. So, give me a taste. The Meiji era took place uh, from 1868 to 1912, and this is kind of the beginning of the Empire of Japan, and it was marked by rapid change from an isolated feudal society to a more modern social, political, and militaristic government, and it was named after the emperor Emperor Meiji. And during the Meiji era, there was this big-ass thing called the Meiji Restoration. And uh, it's called the Restoration because if you uh, know anything about sort of Japanese history, the power has always really been split between the emperor and the shogun. Uh, So during the Meiji Restoration, they ended the shogunate. They ended feudal divisions of society, and the ultimate result was to end the samurai. And everybody knows the samurai are these kind of like mystical warriors, but in in actuality, they're pretty much just like the aristocracy, who are also soldiers, much like knights in Europe during the Middle Ages. At the time of the Restoration, there were about 2 million samurai in Japan. And for a little context on that, that's about 10 times the number of the French second estate during the french revolution so there's a shit ton of samurai and a shit ton of people that would be upset if the samurai class kind of disappeared so the satsuma rebellion really takes place obviously in this area called the satsuma domain it was a large territory that actually helped emperor meiji gain his power and helped end the shogunate However, the new direction of the Meiji government and increased westernization really frightened the samurai of the Satsuma domain. They loved their empire. Samurai means to serve. They were born and bred to serve their emperor and to die whenever he wanted them to. So they loved him. But they feared that the western influences surrounding him would make them obsolete. This might sound familiar to some of you tom cruise fans out there uh because this story was loosely the background for the film the last samurai and uh if you are familiar with that film then you probably know where this story is going however that movie is like super bullshit super not historically accurate fuck that movie two birds one stone bad history i'm also doing a bad movie review Okay, cool. So fuck that movie. That's a good movie though. But fuck it's a great that movie. movie. Fuck that movie. Fuck it So In the Satsuma domain, there's this guy named Saigo Takamori. And yep, it's another one of those episodes with a bunch of fucking names in a different language, so get used to it. So Saigo Takamori was the Satsuma leader. Uh, in the Meiji government, actually, he was also a huge proponent of the samurai lifestyle and philosophy. And if you don't know anything about samurai, they're actually incredibly interesting. They're not just these swordsmen; they have like this crazy, uh, like code of honor called Bushido, and they also believe in poetry and art and expression. It's like a really cool thing. Samurai are pretty cool. Um, but Saigo Takamori was conflicted he wanted only to serve the emperor and actually begged for war with korea so that he and other samurai could find a worthy death so like the ultimate honor for a samurai is to die for their master right like give their life and he he was like oh we're gonna be obsolete so please send us off to war that's what we love that's what we do let us die for you Um, he actually offered to go to Korea himself, personally, and provoke them by being rude and, like, an asshole, to the point that they would have to kill him. He, like, offered that. He was like, I'll go over there, and I'll take my pants off, and I'll shake my butts in their face, and they'll kill me. For you. It's all for you, Emperor Meiji. And then he jumped off the building, and he killed himself. Hung himself through, like, the window. Yeah. (laughs) It was all on film. (laughs) But, uh, Saigo's plans were actually rejected, and he began feeling that he no longer had any use Um, he decided to return to Satsuma to the town of Kagoshima and he resigned from the government and this is like a really big deal because these government positions especially for samurai they're for life like it is your life duty to serve and um, he he just fucking left Um, many former samurai followed him from the military and the police because they were also feeling disillusioned, disenfranchised, they didn't have any purpose. They felt uh, they were becoming, you know, outmoded, essentially. Um, so Saigo set up this thing called Saigo's Academy. That's not actually what it's called. It's got a big-ass <laughs> Japanese name, but it's Saigo's Academy. Saigo's Academy for gifted young samurai. Exactly. <laughs> He's, like, shaved and he runs around in a wheelchair and he teaches you how to fucking be a samurai. So, in order to employ the former samurai, Saigo opened up these schools all over the Satsuma Prefecture. 132 schools, actually. So, these schools were fucking everywhere. These schools taught uh, classical Chinese education, but also used the samurai that kind of followed him and, you know, said, like, fuck this shit, to teach the next generation the ways of samurai. Bushido weapon training, battle tactics. It was a huge success, and it gave employment to the former samurai who were kind of destitute and were sort of ronin at this point, right? It also alienated Satsuma, however, uh, as the last refuge of the samurai way of life, and the local governments were dominated by samurai, and the governor of the Satsuma prefecture actually gave Saigo his full support, So, you have this one domain in this empire, which is doing shit it's not supposed to do, and it's getting a lot of support. So, if you know how history works, what happens next is kind of obvious. There's a rebellion. So, the Meiji government had been dealing with violent samurai rebellions all over Japan, and the notion of the Satsuma gaining popularity and power scared the central government and so they did what they do best they sent fucking ninjas assassination attempts were made against saigo takamori's life um they failed and they were tortured and saigo was like what the fuck (laughs) but saigo you gotta remember uh is like super there to serve the emperor so all the emperor has to do is ask He has to ask Saigo to kill himself, and he will. But this makes Saigo like the ultimate martyr, so it's a really weird situation, right? Um, But the assassination attempts escalated these tensions um, and drew many more disgruntled samurai to Saigo's side. He was sort of becoming a legend and a hero to the samurai and those who held samurai beliefs. Alright, so the year 1877 is the beginning. ...for the Satsuma Rebellion. So tensions are high. The Meiji government actually sends a warship to Satsuma... ...to remove the weapons stockpile at the central government arsenal... ...in the town of Kagoshima. This is because they've got all these weapons there... ...and they don't want all these fucking samurai... ...just walking around by these weapons in case some shit happens. And there's a bunch of students from saigo schools and as we know students are the ones who fucking freak out and cause rebellions because fuck students they (laughs) got nothing better They they don't they don't study for their fucking finals or whatever they're just like no i'm gonna burn fucking trash cans in the streets that's what they do so the students of saigo schools freak the fuck out thousands of students raid the naval yards and arsenals to build a new stockpile Reluctantly, Saigo was persuaded to come out of retirement. Because at this point, he's essentially just like a headmaster of a school, right? He was persuaded to come out of retirement to head the rebellion against the central government. And this seems really interesting and uh, it's sort of contradictory, right? So he loves the government. He loves the emperor. He wants to give his life for them. And he's leading a rebellion against that. And the way he rationalizes it is he's trying to protect... The empire, right? He's trying to protect Emperor Meiji from this encroaching westernization and change. And in some regard, you have to sympathize with that because if you know about the history of uh, Japanese westernizations, pretty much the Americans just fucking showed up and were like, guess what? You're fucking westernized now. Yep. And then forced them to kind of like accept these new ways. And, it, you know, Japan had been pretty. Much uh, monolithic in its feudalism for a thousand years at this point, almost like that. So you can kind of sympathize with uh, Saigo. And as he headed this rebellion, it became known as the Southwest War. So Saigo decides, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to march to Tokyo to show a formal disagreements with the Meiji government and the westernization of Japan. It's like, okay, this sounds nice. He's going to take his army and he's going to march to Tokyo from Satsuma and he's going to approach the Emperor man-to-man and tell him what he's thinking. Because at this point, the Emperor is not in open communications with Saigo. That would look bad and it would be awkward as shit. So, he only took those who were from Satsuma. He turned down offers from nearby prefectures of other, like, lost samurai wanting to join him, right? And um he completely surprised the imperial government, who had dispatched the imperial army to Satsuma, only to be stopped by, actually, the deepest snowfall the region had seen in 50 years. Wow. So they were extending an army to him to, like get rid of him, and he actually went on sort of the war path. He started to march to Tokyo with his own army. Nobody expected that. Um, So here is where we get the one-sided military kind of thingy-do. It's not as bad as the last Samurai movie, which shows like guys using machine guns and tanks and nuclear missiles against a bunch of Samurai with swords and bow and arrows. It's not that bad. But Saigo's army is seriously outmatched and it's seriously outnumbered. So the Satsuma Samurai numbered uh, 20,000 at the height of the rebellion. Um, If you are a fan of guns like I know some of our fans are, they used Enfield and Model 1857 six-line muzzle-loading rifles. These were Russian-made and could fire approximately one round per minute by a well-trained marksman standards. So, like, these are the, you know, put a thing in the end, get the stick, or whatever, and push <laughs> that shit down, and pack it with the goddamn fuck. You know what I'm <laughs> talking about? We, we, we don't know how gun, how muskets work. We're there, there you go. <laughs> so These guys are using fucking, like, Revolutionary War kind of weapons, while the Imperial Japanese Standing Army numbered around 34,000 uh, with state-of-the-art weapons and Western tactics. However, this number ballooned due to conscription and... Tr- No, like, true number can really be accepted, but at the Battle of uh, Tabarazaka alone, the Imperial Army's 9th Infantry numbered some 90,000 soldiers fighting 15,000 satsuma samurai. Holy shit. And they used breech-loading Snyder rifles, which fired six rounds per minute, and the artillery was 5.2-pound mountain guns and Krupp German field artillery and mortars. Uh, State of the art shit. So they're firing more rounds with more high tech weapons at samurai who are pretty much using leftover shit. And at this time, the Imperial Army is, you know, growing fast and getting new technology as the conflict continues. Um, the army was also joined by conscripted Marines and policemen of each prefecture. During the conflict, the Imperial Army expended, on average, 322,000 rounds of ammunition and 1,000 artillery shells per day against Saigo's forces. So, just pretty much raining fucking metal down on them. But Saigo was confident that, you know, the samurai were bred warriors and these other guys were just, like, soldiers. So he was like, fuck it, we're gonna win, whatever, goddamn. So Saigo continues his march to Tokyo and began sieging Kumamoto Castle while on the warpath. They held the siege for two full months before actually fleeing because of Imperial reinforcements. Uh, The rest of the conflict doesn't go so well for Saigo. After the failed Battle of Tabarizuka that I mentioned before, Saigo retreated to the mountains and led guerrilla-style attacks on Imperial forces. Saigo was eventually caught in battle and defeated, uh, forcing Saigo to escape with only his most able-bodied men. At this point, the Satsuma Samurai had been reduced to 3,000 and they've lost all their modern weaponry and uh, artillery. So, the Battle of Shiroyama. This is the big one. This is the real major one where it comes to show the military disadvantage of the Satsuma Samurai. So Saigo is outnumbered in this battle 60 to 1. He had no weapons aside from traditional samurai weapons. So bows and arrows, swords, spears, that shit. Horses. The government found uh, Saigo's position and bombarded it with artillery for two days. And finally, on September 24th, 1877, a full assault was ordered on the Satsuma front lines. Once the assault ended, only 40 samurai still lived. Saigo himself... Yeah, only 40 left. Saigo himself had been critically wounded and committed seppuku uh, with the aid of his friend Bepu Shinsuke. If you don't know what seppuku is, um, that's that dealio where the samurai you know, he offers his life, he offers to take his own life and stabs himself in the stomach with one of his traditional swords, and then somebody removes his head. It's like a big, honorable beautiful thing, and um this guy bepu shinsuke actually helps him out yeah i um, want to say real quick there's in uh in the show
0: the man in the high castle the there's a great representation of that uh, i don't want to give away any spoilers but it's uh it's pretty pretty accurate to to
1: that like what you just described i need to watch that show very very good show well, after Saigo's death, Beppu and the last remaining samurai drew their swords and charged downhill at the Imperial Army. Uh, they all perished in the last charge, and this was the final end of the Satsuma Rebellion. So this character, Beppu Shinsuke, is kind of uh, the basis for Tom Cruise's character in The Last Samurai. He was Saigo's like friend and confidant, He helped him commit suicide, and then he is the last samurai, right? So, the result of the Satsuma Rebellion. Bunch of guys with swords fighting a bunch of guys with modern guns and thousands more people. So the Satsuma Rebellion actually did a lot. It financially crippled the Meiji government. Uh, The war actually forced Japan off the gold standard and started the minting of paper currency. Uh, Along with economic reform came military reform, requiring conscription without regard to social class. Now, this is what effectively ended the samurai as an institution in Japan. Saigo Takamori's legacy is really interesting. He was seen as a hero by the people who claimed to be fighting for the emperor against the new westernized government. And he was actually posthumously pardoned by the emperor Meiji himself in 1889 so 12 years later and saigo is kind of held up in japanese history as the the last samurai the guy who fought to keep japan like to keep the japanese culture and japanese tradition whole now if that's a good thing that's up for you to decide because you have to remember it was like really class-based society had no like egalitarian things at all But after this point, most people, um, you know... It kind of leveled out for them. Except, of course, the Emperor was, like, Tsarist in his rule. Um, But he's considered, modernly... Saigo Takamori is considered to be uh, a hero. Like a Japanese folk hero. Sort of George Washington-esque, almost. You know? Gotcha. So, that is the story of the Satsuma Rebellion. And the last samurai who got shot up while they were uh, <laughs> holding swords and spears and shit. Damn, good, good scrolls,
0: man. That's really interesting. Thanks, dude. I did, I really didn't know, you know, like I knew roughly the story of the uh, Tom Cruise canon Last Samurai. Tom Cruise but...
1: flew in on his F-15 <laughs> and his Days of Thunder car and he uh, wiped Messiah the fuck out of those Japanese. Yep, yep, exactly. And then, and then he yep. became the Last Samurai. It's the, uh, the the Pocahontas Dances
0: with the Wolves uh, avatar effect.
1: The avatar story. The <laughs> Fern Gully effect, if you would yeah. like.
0: <laughs> um, no, that's interesting. And I think what's cool is that he ended up getting exactly what he wanted, which was to, to die honorably as a samurai.
1: Exactly. Like, in his mind he was always doing it for the emperor and he wanted to give his life and he did So, right. he, in his mind everything went according to plan um, he got he let the samurai have their final <laughs> battle do you know what I mean so they got to die right. with honor so he kind of won get on Saigo Takamori Steven, I have no idea what your story is about, but I am yeah, you so don't. anxious to hear. So why don't we yes. play that music? Push push the music. Let's button. play that fucking music. All
0: right, Dave. So the battle that I'm going to be talking about today is the battle of Toitaburg Forest. Toitaburg? Toideberg Forest. How do you spell that? Teutoburg is spelled T-E-U-T-O-B-U-R-G. Teutoburg.
1: Teutoburg.
0: Yeah. Oh. Now, I did spend, oh, 30 minutes trying to find someone pronounce this word for me so that I knew how it was pronounced. Okay. Uh, so I have, an, I have a handy little, uh, ha- handy little pronunciation guide for me. Pronunciation? <laughs> yeah. It's... Uh, The way I have it written out makes it look like it says Toyotaberg, but that (laughs) ain't right.
1: (laughs) That ain't right. (laughs) But that ain't right. (laughs) Don't worry about it. So, the Battle of
0: Toyotaberg Forest is a key battle in Roman history. Okay. It's a battle in which the Romans fought a collection of Germanic tribes in what is now North Germany. Now, I want to set the stage a little bit and explain why this battle is so significant and why, really on paper, it was really, really one-sided. Dude, set that stage. I'm going to set that stage for him, man. I'm going to set that stage. Uh, So the Romans, as most people know, were the dominant force in the Western world for hundreds and hundreds of years. They conquered Italy, North Africa, parts of the Middle East, and most of mainland Europe, not including... The kind of Eastern Europe Russian area, um, they did this by being smart. You don't really get to be the dominant force in the world for nearly 800 years without being smart. They knew. Well, I mean, America. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's for another episode. Okay. Explain. <laughs> <laughs> they knew that they could not just simply conquer lands, wipe out the people, and successfully keep them. Instead, what they uh, would fairly commonly do is pull them into their empire diplomatically instead of just by brute force. Sometimes this would just occur by marching their army into an area and kind of saying, hey, look, we got this super big army that you don't have. You should come hang out with us. Um, Other times it was by defeating them in battle and then doing the exact same thing. But really, the only time they ever felt the need to wipe someone out is if they were kind of refused to bend the knee. They refused to jump on board with them. Or if they were just too much of a threat to kind of keep around, you know, we can kind of look at Carthage here. Where Carthage was a very formidable, sizable threat to the Roman Empire. The Romans were able to kind of through luck and better military planning defeat Carthage, and then they went and salted the land and made sure that nothing would ever grow there ever again. And they did that because they knew that Carthage was a very, very formidable threat. But at the very center of their empire was the army. The Roman army was kind of not something that you really fucked around with. They carried, uh, the, the, the Roman army, they carried large rectangular seat shields. They had, uh, their primary weapons were short store, swords that they used for stabbing at close range, but they also carried a very large javelin that was feared among people because of how, just how deadly it was. They could throw it, they could use it in uh, more medium range combat. Uh, it, it was, it was extremely, extremely dangerous. And each soldier knew how to use these weapons to their 100% full advantage. But I think even more importantly than the weapons they had was that the Romans had loyalty. They had extreme loyalty. Serving in the Roman army meant serving for upwards of 30 years. And during this time, you would become extremely loyal to the other men in your legion and your commander. If your commander asked you to run into battle with your pants around your ankles and your eyes covered, you would do it. This loyalty was something that few, <laughs> few other armies at the time had. And, I mean, this is, this is loyalty that few other armies in all of history really ever had. It was kind of hard to comp- compete with this discipline and the expertise of the Roman soldiers. Uh, it was just, it, it, was, it was something that, it was hard to take this and use it, you know, to the other army's advantage. Loyalty isn't something that can be turned around on them, right? It's something that's not going to fail in battle. But I want to talk about the Germanic tribes briefly. The Germanic tribes uh, occupied the areas that are now kind of central Europe, kind of mostly now modern-day Germany. They were a small collection of people that were constantly at war with each other. Uh, at, at its height, it is believed that in Germania, which is modern-day Germany, there were upwards of 50 <laughs> tribes. and yeah. and uh, And they were kind of all constantly at war with each other for land area, for food and resources, that sort of thing. And the Romans viewed these these people as barbarians. They saw that they that they lacked the culture that they had. They saw that they lacked the discipline that they had. They were just kind of, you know, they were different, right? Uh, you want you know a little fun
1: fact, real quick? Give it to me. Like one reason that the Romans thought like the Germans were like the most barbaric is they wore pants. <laughs> so Romans didn't wear pants, but the Germans wore like pants with like an inseam, and they are like fucking weirdos in their pants. <laughs> I don't like it. They're not as good as
0: our utilitarian uh, skirt. Yeah, they have. can't
1: curtsy like this. <laughs> and the entire German army uh, just, like, can't curtsy. <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, fucking pants wears.
0: So, so the thing is, is that because these tribes weren't unified if they ever wanted to go to battle against Rome, they were going to be extremely outclassed. They lacked the numbers, they lacked the discipline, and they lacked some of the key weapons. The weapons that the Germans used were not nearly as polished and as perfected as the Roman weapons. I mean, the Romans had the Romans kind of kept the same weaponry for hundreds of years because it worked. Like, why? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the Germans, the weapons that they used, while they certainly weren't to the extent of your story, Dave, where you know they have it's like machine guns versus swords. <laughs> what they had was uh, was a little bit more crude. They did have the primary weapon that they used was spears, um, so obviously they prefer, pre- preferred medium range combat. Really, they used these spears as kind of an extension of their arm, and uh, and it was the primary weapons that they used. They did have you know some some smaller, shorter range weaponry like axes and short swords, but Really, the spear was their primary weapon in terms of ranged combat, they use slings, which is a sling is kind of a very long piece of leather, and in the center is what looks like almost like a little cup, and they put rocks in there you you kind of twirl them around, you let one side go, and it throws the rock and the whole idea is that it doubles the length of your arm so you get more more momentum on the rock and they can be very, very deadly and the sling is a pretty basic weapon it's a pretty primitive weapon but it worked for what they needed it to do uh if you trained with a sling you know three hours a day for two years you're going to be very very accurate with it you're going to be very very deadly with it but still a sling compared to a bow and arrow i mean it's it's not
1: exactly on the same level yeah So like you're talking about how like the sling is just like see these rocks hitting these like huge shields it's like
0: completely right. useless now <laughs> exactly exactly and and so I mean they 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 work when you're fighting people with other slings but you're fighting against Romans and
1: uh and and they're just they're not effective you think like Germ- the uh like the Germanic tribes like charged. And they're like, slingmen? And they like step forward and they're like, where are their slingmen? And they like step out with bows and arrows and they're like, what the fuck are those? <laughs> <laughs> those aren't slings.
0: <laughs> so so they did also use javelins, uh, but a javelin's much more cumbersome, harder to carry. Uh, if you're fighting small guerrilla warfare. You're not going to really want to use a javelin. A sling is probably better for what you're going to need to use. But they did have javelins. Too. You can't really reload a javelin either. You can't you really reload a up. javelin. <laughs> no. Uh, but javelins are going to play an important role in this battle. So the Romans, for many, many years, have been trying to conquer the Germanic areas of Europe. I mean, they've been trying to conquer all of Europe. Um, but the, the the Germanic area was something that they were really struggling with. It was hard to conquer people that were so spread out, that could move around so easily, uh, and that could that knew the area better than they did. I mean, that, that's what it really comes down to. Yeah. However, eventually they kind of do enter into this loose alliance that was forced upon them by the Romans. Um, and when I say alliance, that's kind of, that, that, that's very it's not exactly an alliance, right? It's more of, we're going to be here you're going to be nice to us. We have this big army. We'll fucking destroy you. And that, I mean, that, that was kind of the Roman way. That's but with, the Roman with, way, right? <laughs> um, there are two people who are very important to the story. The first is Publius Varus, who spent most of his time commanding legions in Germania, uh, and he was really, really good at what he did. Varus, he is the son of nobility within Rome. He's tasked with being kind of the guy in charge of these germanic areas and he's good at what he does he's able to keep the tri- the tribes in check through cruelty which made him feared by the germans and really really loved by the romans the other man is armenius who is from one of these germanic tribes and after a major battle between the romans and a germanic tribe which the germanic tribe lost it was customary for the leader of the army on the Germanic side to send one of his sons to Rome to, as almost sort of like a hostage. And this is super traditional. We see this all the time. And so this is what happened with Arminius. The whole idea is you send him back to Rome to become Romified. Romified. But instead of making him Romified, all they really do is just breed a better German. Uh, He became a more capable warrior for the German people. He became educated. They pretty much said, hey, here's how the Roman military works. Now go be free, which I don't think that's really the best idea in the world. And it kind of comes and backfires. Uh, Slowly but surely, he began to hatch a plan to really get rid of the Romans for good out of his homeland. And when he leaves Rome and returns back to Germania, he becomes a trusted advisor to Varus. And this is kind of the first step of the plan. He's going to get on Varus's good side. He's going to make sure that Varus trusts them. Yeah. And in secret, he strikes a deal with several German tribes and was able to unite them over their collective hate for Varus. And this is huge. Really, it's only five tribes out of around 50 in the area. But that's still five tribes being united, which is really, really tough to do.
1: Yeah.
0: So Armenius kicks off the, off the plan by first fabricating a story that there is an uprising in the north of Germania and that Varus should really go quickly go put it down. Varus agrees and takes his army of three legions, which is about 30,000 men, north to go put down this rebellion. Now, in order to save, save some time, they cut through some unknown areas of, uh, of Germania, which is never really a good idea. And this is his first big mistake. As Varys is marching, marching uh, along, this, uh, along this area, through this unknown area, the forest begins to slowly sink in around them until eventually they are marching on a very narrow road surrounded by fo- foliage. That ain't good. It's not good. <laughs> then, To make matters worse, out of nowhere, a violent storm hits and begins to turn the road very, very muddy and very, very tough for a whole entire army of 30,000 people to walk through. Up ahead, the army spots an area that has turned into more or less of a swamp. Where it's muddy, there's a lot of standing water on the road. Uh, It's something that's going to be very, very tough to cross. And this was Varys' second mistake. Instead of sending a group of of soldiers ahead to fortify it and more or less treat it like a river crossing, he marches troops forward with the idea that we're just going to march straight through it. and they were ripe for the picking Armidius used this instance to strike and had his forces who were hiding in the woods surrounding the road just pretty much decimate the Roman forces with javelins and this is when the javelins come into play they pretty much just rain fucking fire on these these Roman soldiers with javelins. To make matters worse this is a very narrow road of 30,000 men. The whole entire Roman army is stretched out over about 15 kilometers so you, you have these, these Roman soldiers who rely on large numbers and on good discipline who just can't do anything. So Arminius was also able to use his education on Roman war and Roman battle to halt Roman defenses of these people and Roman fortifications. Eventually, the Romans just have to retreat and quickly set up a fortified camp back down the road. Mm. The next day, the Romans tried once again to march through the, the soaking wet woods, but were again slaughtered by German forces. The Germans were taking, uh, taking the advantages that the, Germ- that the Romans had and really turning them against them. The Romans couldn't use their artillery in this in this heavy rain. They couldn't use their numbers to their advantage because they were forced into very, very narrow lines. They couldn't use their discipline to their advantage. The Germans were taking it all away from them. The next night, the Romans attempted to escape, but kind of fell right back into the hands of of a German trap. On a narrow road between a hill and a swamp, the Germans fortified a makeshift wall that blocked the road. They were then able to attack the Romans from multiple sides, some from the hills, some from on top of this fortified wall. The Romans were unsuccessful in trying to storm the wall, but eventually broke into just mass confusion. The Romans didn't know what to do. They couldn't get across this wall. They were getting attacked from multiple sides. It's still raining and wet at this point. They just they, they didn't know what to do. Eventually, the cavalry decided to mutiny and just straight-up flee. But the Germans, anticipating this, cut them off and were able to just wipe them out.
1: Dang. So now the
0: whole entire Roman cavalry of these three legions is done. You have people who are just in mass confusion who don't know what to do. It's really, really not looking good for the Romans. <laughs> the Germans then see this confusion. They see that the cavalry is decimated, and they decide to finally leave the woods and storm on to the, to the Romans in a more pitched-style battle. And the Germans just decimated them. There was nothing that the Romans could do. They had pants. They had pants, man. They had pants. They had pants. They weren't chafing. <laughs> Varus. At this point, reads the writing on the wall and took his own life. Uh, And the rest of the Roman forces surrendered to Arminius. In total, around 20,000 Romans died during the battle. The rest of the captives were all killed, with the Roman commanders all being burned alive. Damn. The German forces then moved through all the Roman fortifications in the area and looted and destroyed them. Pretty much. Pretty much wiping out any sort of Roman influence in the area, they did exactly what they had intended on doing. Damn. And to put this, this this into perspective in terms of numbers, we don't know exactly how large the German forces were. A probably anywhere between 12,000 and 20,000. but my guess is on the lower end, probably somewhere around fifteen thousand German soldiers. We also have to understand these are these are not the the. The trained, loyal, disciplined Roman soldiers. These are soldiers who probably had to had to scrape together to fight this mass forces. So, uh, so they didn't have the the training on their side. They didn't have the, the weaponry on their side. But what they had that the Romans didn't have was that they were fighting for a purpose.
1: Yeah,
0: they were fighting for their homeland, which is, I mean, it's huge. it's a huge, huge advantage. Uh, in terms of of losses, obviously we know the losses on the Roman on the Roman side was total. Uh, in terms of in, ba- <laughs> in in terms of in battle, uh, around twenty thousand out of the thirty thousand, but then they were all killed. They didn't take prisoners. For the German side, we're not one hundred percent sure. There was to put things into perspective a little bit when the site was excavated, uh, when when archaeologists were able to. To, to kind of piece things together out of the thousands of artifacts found that were Roman they only found one German artifact damn which could mean that there were the losses that the Germans faced were very very few but it was traditional for the Germans to take their dead and bury them with their full uh, battle gear so we don't really know but it's, it's estimated that losses were minimal for the Germans. But the aftermath of this battle is really what makes it so important. After this, the Romans were never able to fully take hold of Germania ever again. There was some retaliation by the Romans, but they could never really get a good foothold in the country. There were already, always external factors that pushed them out. They always took too many losses to really f- fully set up camp they were just never able to fully take hold of Germania again. And with at least some of the tribes united, Germania was no longer this place that was just easy for the taking by the Romans. So really, what happened was the Romans, through their cruelty, through their force, were able to unite tribes within Germania, which ended up being their undoing.
1: Yeah, and then the Germans fucking conquered Rome eventually. Rome was eventually conquered
0: by all the barbarian tribes that they had kind of kept under lock and key well that's a good fucking scroll Stephen. thanks man I appreciate that
1: fucking I like that um, our stories were different in the sense that my military with no modern weaponry got fucked up and yeah. yours did the fucking exactly exactly so that worked out really nice yeah so there's two sides Two sides to every coin.
0: But more than likely, it's usually on your side. If you got the weapons,
1: yeah, you should be fine. Right, exactly. You should just go conquer the Aztecs and shit. The Incans. You'll be alright. You'll be good. You'll be good. You'll be good. Alright, Steven. This was a good week. These were some good stories. Thanks, man. What do you think next week's topic should be?
0: Okay, so I have an idea. And... This is an idea I've had for a while, and I want to run it by you and see what you think about it, Dave. So, what do you think about this
1: idea? Stories from the Wild West. The Wild West. We're talking about the fucking cowboys and engines. Yeah. And cowboys and engines. Saloons and shit. Yeah, man.
0: Let's do it. You like it? Yeah, I like it. All right, let's do it. Uh, So... Along with that, I want to give you guys a rundown of what's going to be happening uh, over the course of the next few weeks. So, as you guys heard last episode, and as I mentioned earlier this episode, I'm going to be out of the country for just about two weeks, and with the fact that Dave has had an absolutely bonkers fucking insane schedule, <laughs> we haven't we haven't really had time to record multiple episodes to fill those weeks so unfortunately we're going to be taking about a two-week break uh while i'm in europe um but when we get back we'll start start back up again start it all back up start it all back up again um but that being said that doesn't mean that i'm you guys are just like not going to hear from us for two weeks while i'm in europe my plan is to do kind of video logs of what's going on over there because europe has lots of really cool history that i'm super interested in and so uh I'm going to try to post some every so often of places that I go to and talk about the history of, of it a little bit just so you guys have some of that and I'm going to be posting those on the Facebook page I think um, we might just eventually throw them all on YouTube we have a YouTube we don't really use it but uh, but that's kind of the plan so the next two weeks the uh, so this episode's going up today which is the 24th so the 1st of July and the 8th of July there aren't going to be episodes mm, sorry uh, guys yeah we i mean we don't like doing that that's just kind of the situation that we're in here yeah um and you know this is this is definitely kind of one of those weird things that like won't happen yeah again right like that's this is this isn't something that happens regularly uh but but like i said once once i get back we're gonna record episodes we're gonna we're gonna kind of keep on keeping on keeping on trucking oh god <laughs> <laughs> so before we go I want to talk about briefly where you guys can find us we are on iTunes search for bad history you can find us on there rate review subscribe all that good stuff uh, it, it's really cool when you guys write reviews I love reading them um, and it really does kind of help us out when you write reviews uh, we are also on podbean Bad badhistorypodcast.podbean.com you can find us all on there we're on Stitcher, we're on Google Play Music, we are all over the place. Um, if there's a directory that we're not on that you think we should be on, let us know. We'll, we'll do our best to get on there. You can find us on you can find us on Twitter, at Bad History Cast. You can find us on Facebook, just search for Bad History Podcast. And of course, we have email, badhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Email us, send us suggestions, uh, send us stuff you like about the show, send us stuff you don't like about the show, anything like that, you know? Uh, but I think that's it for me.
1: Yay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> this has been a weird episode. I'm sorry, guys. This is just like recording him in the morning is like ma- majorly throwing me off. Um,
1: it's okay.
0: Yeah. But this will be all right. Uh, anyway, that's it for us. Like I said, we're not going to have episodes for the next two weeks, and we're really, really sorry about that. We wish we could. Oh, no. <sighs> you're not? Okay. Yeah, but that's just kind of how it how it's worked out. Um, but like I said, you're still going to be hearing from us. I'm stoked to do these these kind of video these video diary log things. Uh, and so we'll see how those work out. Anyway, anything else you want to add, Dave?
1: Just, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Just want to say happy history and good scrolls. We'll see you guys later.